0: Welcome to the BJA Education Podcast. Welcome to the April 2017 edition of the BJA Education Podcast. I'm Benj Marriage And I'm Cliff Shelton. Parkinson's disease represents a challenge for the anaesthetist. It is increasingly common amongst an ageing population and the prospect of meeting a patient with Parkinson's disease in the elective or emergency setting is a likely one. As is widely recognised, many of the medications used by anaesthetists may have an impact on Parkinson's disease, and the period of fasting pre- and post-operatively can have important implications for the maintenance of the patient's usual therapy. So Cliff went to talk to Dr David Chambers, anaesthetic registrar from the North Western Deanery, to discuss his paper entitled Parkinson's Disease, published in this month's April 2017 paper edition of BJA Education. So to start off with, can you please give us a brief
1: overview of the pathogenesis and clinical features of Parkinson's disease? Parkinson's disease is the most common neurodegenerative disorder, uh, affecting 100,000 people in the UK. In the over-65s, over uh, the prevalence is about 1%, so it's actually surprisingly common, uh, and it gets increasingly common as patients get older. Um, the pathogenesis is loss of dopaminergic neurons from the substantia nigra, though it's not clear the mechanism by which this occurs age is the most common risk factor associated with dopaminergic loss.
0: We would probably remember from medical school that Parkinson's disease is associated with disordered movement, but you mentioned in your article about its multi-system effects. Can you give us an overview of uh, how it affects the patient more holistically?
1: Yes, the triad of Parkinsonism is uh, arresting tremor, which um, as you know is usually asymmetric, bradykinesia and rigidity. And most patients have this triad, but there is a number of other um, features which occur either before diagnosis or after diagnosis. So, for example, um, before diagnosis, patients may experience fatigue or uh, mood changes such as depression and anxiety, uh, and very commonly sleep disturbance. Uh, later on, patients develop some of the classical motor features of Parkinsonism, uh, such as stooped posture, gait change, uh, shuffling gait, dysphagia, small handwriting and slow speech. Um, and then later on, as the disease progresses, dementia becomes increasingly common. Um, in fact, eight, uh, after 20 years of diagnosis, about 80% of patients with Parkinson's disease develop Parkinson's dementia or Lewy body dementia. And I believe there's also
0: some autonomic effects, which are probably irrelevant in anaesthetic practice.
1: Yes, yeah, so particularly um, as the disease progresses, patients become... Um, have postural hypotension, either as a result of the disease or as a result of the drug treatment. Um, Scylurea, so drooling, is especially common um, as the disease progresses and that has consequences for anaesthetists, particularly regarding airway management. You mentioned that Parkinson's disease is very common. How is it diagnosed? Diagnosis is still clinical. There's no genetic testing, uh, though first-degree relatives are more likely to develop Parkinson's disease. Um, And there's uh, some UK Criteria called the UK Brain Bank criteria, which are based on uh, postmortem studies of patients with Parkinson's disease, uh, and they are essentially clinical criteria um, where, where lists of the features of Parkinson's disease um, are put together to come up with a diagnosis.
0: And you mentioned in your article that um, Parkinson's disease is typically diagnosed once sixty to eighty percent of the dopaminergic neurons are um, are lost. So presumably, there's a substantial number of patients who are Sort of pre diagnosis, but still have some potential features of Parkinson's disease that might be exacerbated by the way we do our anaesthetic. Um, how likely is it that we'll, we'll meet somebody like that in
1: our day to day practice, and what should we look out for as anaesthetists? Uh, well, you're right, Cliff. So, some patients will present before they develop the classic triad of Parkinson's, Parkinsonism um, with things like fatigue and depression. Um, and they, those patients may also have autonomic dysfunction at diagnosis or before diagnosis. But patients also may present with the triad of parkinsonism, and just haven't sought medical attention for it before. Mm. Um, so patients could present either to elective services or in the middle of the night, potentially, with Parkinsonism. And so it's something that you need to be aware of. Um, and something that uh, would alter the conduct of anaesthesia. And if you met a patient who had, for example,
0: that classical unilateral pill-rolling type tremor, would you presumptively manage them as if they were likely to have Parkinson's disease in the emergency context, for instance? In the emergency
1: context, is, is a bit different. I think in the elective context, you'd want to involve Parkinson's disease specialists because this is a difficult diagnosis to make. And in fact, 10% of patients at post-mortem who are diagnosed with Parkinson's disease don't have the... Uh, features of Nigra um dopaminergic neuron loss um, and so there is an element even in, in experienced uh, centres of, um, of misdiagnosing patients with Parkinson's disease so it's a difficult diagnosis to make so it's worth getting Parkinson's disease specialists, either your local Parkinson's disease specialist nurse um, which most hospitals have or your Parkinson's disease physician involved in the patient um, early on For the patient who comes in the middle of the night, this is a very different prospect because those those facilities aren't necessarily available. So um, can you give us an overview of the pharmacological management of Parkinson's disease? First thing to say is Parkinson's disease management is very complex Mm. um, in terms of the drug management, and patients have very complex drug regimes. Um, And this is is a consequence of um, trying to balance the symptoms of Parkinson's disease against the very substantial side effects of the medication. Mm. So
0: what would be a sort of starting medication regimen for a Parkinson's disease patient early on in their diagnosis?
1: This kind of depends a bit on the patient's age, I think, and there are different regimes in different centres. But essentially, essentially, patients with Parkinson's disease often end up on a um, levodopa um, regime. Mm-hmm. Um, but, after, but the side effects of levodopa well, the most significant side effect of levodopa is uh, dyskinesia. And the longer the patient is on a levodopa regime, the more likely they are to become dyskinetic. Um, and so for younger patients, they may be started on dopamine agonists initially before okay. levodopa is started. And can you tell us some of the names of dopamine agonists? So there are a number of dopamine agonists around, but the most common oral medications are um, the forgettable, pramiprexol and rapinrol. okay.
0: And you mentioned as well that um, uh, patients are sometimes started on medications which prevent dopamine breakdown. Um, are those are those common medications, or are they at the rarer end of the spectrum for our Parkinson's disease
1: cohort? Patients can be on levodopa and other drugs. In fact, a bit like we use um, drugs to spare the amount of opioid we give um, Parkinson's disease specialists put patients on MAOI. Um, B inhibitors and COMT inhibitors in order to reduce the amount of levodopa that they take to reduce the side effects of levodopa, and in fact, dopamine agonists as well. So patients therefore have quite a complex regime, particularly if they are later in their disease progression, they may be on a whole range of dopamine agonists, dopamine precursors such as levodopa or MOBIs or COMTIs. So I think the the lesson
0: from that is that the um, uh, as you stated the sort of complexity of uh, uh, medication regimes and and also you know uh, as you uh, suggested the forgettability of some of the names. So um, uh, clearly it's it's always worthwhile looking these meds up and um, uh, consulting with the experts at your own institution. But one thing that is apparent from your paper is that most of these are oral agents, and um, I think the um, potential for patients to withdraw from these uh, either because of starving perioperatively or because of uh, an underlying, uh, for example, abdominal complaint um, is quite well recognised. How does withdrawal manifest uh, from these medications? What would you see if the patient has been without them for some time?
1: So withdrawal of Parkinson's disease medications um, can be really tricky actually. So patients will experience off symptoms. So on symptoms are where a patient has good symptom control, and off symptoms are where patients, where the medication is wearing off, the patients start to become slower, they may freeze. Um, They find it very disabling. So the longer a patient is without their medication, the more likely they are to exhibit their Parkinsonism, um, that is the tremor and the bradykinesia. The more serious withdrawal complications occur depending on the medication that they're on. So patients who are on dopamine agonists um, may experience dopamine agonist withdrawal syn- syndrome, or DAWs, uh, and they get a number of symptoms such as anxiety, nausea, depression, pain, and particularly orthostatic hypotension. So this is going to be really difficult to manage. Um, people, patients who are on dopamine agonists really shouldn't have their medication stopped. Uh, Patients who are on uh, levodopa regimes can have something even more serious called Parkinsonism hyperparexia syndrome, PHS, which is very similar to neuroelectric malignant syndrome. And these patients um, have severe muscle rigidity, uh, fever, and cardiovascular instability, um, and altered mental status such as uh, either agitation or delirium or coma. And this carries a really high mortality, 20%, if you don't spot it in time. So these, uh evidently extremely serious withdrawal complications, do they
0: uh, manifest quickly or, you know, is there a place for being able to delay a Parkinson's medication, for example, in the case of a short day case operation where um, oral intake is predicted to be able to be resumed immediately post-operatively?
1: I think the research here is uh, not clear as to whether there is a safe time that you can emit patient's medication. and certainly Unpleasant for the patient, mm. uh, and we do know that patients who have Parkinson's disease have an increased mortality and a whole range of morbidities uh, in the peripart period. For example, uh, respiratory insufficiency. Um, so I think the what we'd recommend from this article is to say that we shouldn't stop patients' medications in the peripart period if at all possible. And we should replace them um, by whatever means, whether that's enteral um, via an gastric tube uh, or transdermal subcutaneous during the perioperative period to cover the patients so that they don't have um, withdrawal effects either off symptoms or any of these serious withdrawal complications. You've conveyed some of the complexity of um, uh, managing
0: these patients uh, perioperatively. If you have an elective case sort of coming up on your, on your list then, can you summarise how you would approach the preoperative assessment and management of these patients?
1: Um so if you've got an elective patient coming to to your hospital, then the key thing really is to involve parkinson's disease specialists early on um especially if you've got urgent surgery cancer surgery for example there are, parkinson's disease nurses can be very helpful with preparing the patient mm-hmm. um in terms of their pharmacological management for of the operation but also for the post operative period as well because patients who have Parkinson's disease have a very high incidence of post-operative delirium, somewhere in the region of 56%. Um, Parkinson's disease nurses can help with patients' reorientation afterwards, and having continuity pre-operative and post-operatively uh, can really help in these situations.
0: Okay, and I would certainly commend listeners to have a look at the article, and particularly Table 3, which details some of the features of anaesthetic assessment uh, for these uh, for these patients. So how about in the emergency setting then, or maybe when enteral absorption um, is impaired due to abdominal pathology. Um, If you have to replace Parkinson's disease medications parenterally, uh, what's the
1: best approach with which to do that? I think the listeners will be aware of uh, one method, apomorphine, which is a subcutaneous infusion, Mm -hmm. uh, which is a dopamine agonist. Now, apomorphine has been around for many years, and it's traditionally the method used to replace dopaminergic medication during the perioperative period, but it has a huge number of side effects. Mm. You have to subject the patients to a preoperative ap- apomorphine challenge in order to find the right dose, which treats the symptoms, but without the adverse effects. So the adverse effects here are severe hypotension mm. and um, severe nausea and vomiting, so it's extremely emetogenic drug, apomorphine. Patients are then admitted preoperatively for two to three days of infusion, apomorphine infusion prior to the operation with um anti-emetic cover mm-hmm. and then the, then infusion throughout the periative period uh, into the postoperative period and Then they can restart their enteral medication. So clearly there's
0: a number of very undesirable effects of apomorphine uh, but you mentioned a, a newer drug, uh, retigatine Can you outline the advantages and the use of that uh, medication for uh, perioperative management for these patients?
1: retigatine is really Change the clinical picture for Parkinson's patients in the peritoneal period, particularly. Uh, It's a transdermal preparation of a a dopamine agonist. Came into clinical practice uh, around 2008 2009. Uh, Reticative patches are much easier to use than apomorphine, they're much less metagenic and have much fewer side effects. Mm. Um, There's no need to have a challenge beforehand, um, and you can fairly easily convert the patient's fairly complex enteral regime to a single reticotine patch, um, either through from advice from a Pogson specialist mm-hmm. um, or in the middle of the night, um, there are some simple algorithms um, or a website you can use um, the drug calculator, which is um, given in the article. All you need to do is plug in the patient's usual drugs and doses and times of day, and it will give you a single patch to start the patient on. Well, that sounds extremely useful, and
0: the address for that is www.parkinsonscalculator.com. So um, I would certainly recommend that uh, listeners take a look at that and uh, commit it to memory. In terms of intraoperative management, what should the conduct of anaesthesia be for a Parkinson's disease patient?
1: Well, I think there are a few things to be aware of here. The main thing you want to achieve is for the patient to continue to receive their dopaminergic medication throughout the perioperative period, including intraoperatively. So if the patient is an elective patient, you'd like the patient to be first on the list. Mm-hmm. That's so that the timing of operation is more predictable, so that you can give their medication right up until induction or anaesthesia. That's including in, into the nil one mouth period, so they could have their, the, the dopaminergic medication um, up until the moment of anaesthesia with a sip of water. That's mm-hmm. considered safe. Um, but also so that the patients will be in the recovery room, um, during daylight hours, and they can have input from their Parkinson's disease specialists there.
0: What about the um, what about the drugs that we use? Anything that's considered um, safe in Parkinson's
1: disease, or anything that's contraindicated for induction of anesthesia? If you're considering general anesthesia, propofol is considered a safe induction drug, even though propofol is associated with myoclonic jerks. Mm-hmm. Um, it diminishes the tremor of Parkinson's disease uh, considerably. The th- case reports of thiopentone and ketamine being used safely in Parkinson's disease patients, um, despite theoretical risks of um, worsening symptoms, and so the choice of induction drug is um, entirely down to the listener. Mm-hmm. Volatile agents are all safe, with the exception of um, halothane, which is obviously rarely used in any case. Mm-hmm. The main considerations are around the use of antiemetics in Parkinson's disease. So, some of our commonly used antiemetics um, are dopamine antagonists, so it will exacerbate the symptoms of Parkinson's disease. So I'm talking about um, phenothiazines, butrophenones uh, and benzamines. Um, also, haloperidol is a drug to avoid in delirium uh, because of its uh, dopamine antagonist effects. Okay. But drugs such as ondansetron and cyclosine are considered safe to use in Parkinson's disease and also domperidone, which is a very commonly used antiemetic in Parkinson's disease patients. You also mentioned an emphasis on regional anaesthesia um,
0: in Parkinson's disease patients. What's the proposed benefit in, um, uh, in this
1: context? If a patient is undergoing surgery, uh, which is amenable to a regional blockade, then there are a number of advantages of performing a spinal, for example. So intraoperatively, you can monitor um, for signs of Parkinsonism. And in fact, patients could take additional enteral medications intraoperatively. The real advantage is about the return to enteral inputs post-operatively. By avoiding opioids, um, you reduce the risk of post-operative ileus, um, and also there's a reduced risk of post-operative and vomiting, both of which are barriers to restarting the patient's usual enteral medication. Mm.
0: And You mentioned earlier on that um, Parkinson's disease patients may be on a monoamine oxidase inhibitor, or COMT inhibitor type medication as part of their package of Parkinson's disease medication. Can you remind the listeners of the sort
1: of vasopressor strategies they might want to uh, adopt in these cases? So these are obviously enzymes which are involved in the metabolism of sympathomimetic drugs, um, and so if by inhibiting these enzymes, there'll be uh, the effects of vasopressors will be uh, further enhanced. And so you must use caution and reduce your dose considerably when using direct-acting vasopressors in these circumstances.
0: Now, you've already mentioned about the um, extremely high incidence of post-operative delirium amongst Parkinson's disease patients. Uh, To finish, are there any other specific post-operative considerations that listeners should be aware of?
1: The main thing to to consider in the post-operative period is whether or not a critical care admission is warranted, particularly in a patient who's got a poor cough or poor swallow um, or autonomic dysfunction. These patients are much more likely to have post-op complications such as um, pneumonia and respiratory failure and perhaps should be managed in a critical care environment. Uh, more simply, patients who have significant tremor may be unab- unable to operate a patient-controlled analgesic device. and uh, So analgesia may be, may be difficult to manage their post-op analgesia.
0: Would you always advocate inpatient admission after any anaesthetic, no matter how small for Parkinson's disease patients, or is there scope for day case practice
1: in, um, uh, in this setting? I think this depends on the severity of the Parkinson's disease, the complexity of the drug regime, the complexity of the surgery, whether regional anaesthesia has been possible, and should be considered uh, in consultation with the Parkinson's disease specialist. But I think the default option should be for an inpatient post-operative stay. David Chambers, thank you very much indeed for that uh, fascinating discussion. Thank you.
0: So thanks to David and Cliff. Please join us again next month when we'll be looking in greater detail at the ARDS article. Remember, you can leave feedback on these podcasts via the BJA website and follow us on Twitter at BJA Journals for all the latest updates. Thank you for listening.
1: Thank you for listening to the BJA
0: Education Podcast.